Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. Today, we're launching a special series. I'm Mark Leonard, Director of ECFR. And I'm Susie Dennison, a Senior Fellow at ECFR. And together, we're launching this year's special summer series. In previous years, we've done the Clash of Orders, the Age of Unpeace and the End of the World series. But this year, we're going to be looking at the special relationship between the UK and the EU, what we're calling the Great Reset, and where we'll look at the prospects for rethinking the UK's relationship with Europe. Today marks seven years to the day since the UK voted to leave the EU, and much of that time has been marked by a grey cloud over the relationship, but things are looking slightly more optimistic. We think there are at least four reasons why the time is ripe to talk about a reset. Firstly, the war in Ukraine has increased the stakes and demonstrated to both sides the importance of working together. Secondly, the Windsor framework has created a much more stable constitutional position for EU-UK relations. Thirdly, after years where public opinion was not shifting at all, it now seems to be shifting towards uh, a greater appetite for a closer relationship between the UK and the EU. And finally, there will be elections next year, probably in 2024, both in the UK and in the European Parliament. And under the right circumstances, that could create a good political climate for a reset as well. So for this series, we wanted to talk to some of the smartest people about what's going on. And so obviously, our very first guest had to be Professor Anand Menon. Anand is Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London, as well as being Director of the UK in a Changing Europe Initiative. And we're really excited to have him here with us today. Anand, thank you very much for joining us. So you've written an awful lot um, about this subject, about the UK's relationship with with Europe, with with your organisation, um, you started a tracker of the state of relations between the UK and the EU, but you also um, put out a big report at the beginning of this year looking at where where the areas are that you think that there is uh, trouble on the horizon and where there are where the, the areas are where potentially there is scope um, for more cooperation. So can you maybe just start us off by telling us what do you think a reset looks like? How does, how does that start to emerge? Well, thanks for inviting me. It's really nice to see you both. A reset emerges where the reset is emerging, that is to say where when the politics calms down and both sides are able to talk to each other. And in particular, I think when on the UK side, there aren't political points to be gained from being in conflict with the European Union. You remember under Boris Johnson, it was almost a badge of honour that everything we did was was compared favourably with everything the EU did. There was that stuff with a sort of competitiveness and, and doing the EU down was seen as good politics. That seems to be no longer the case under Rishi Sunak. So I think the mood music, though we'll come back to this, I think there's a big difference between mood music and substance, is already improving and I suspect will continue to improve. But, Anand, you know, I think you're right about that. And obviously, you know, we've all had quite a lot of trouble predicting political uh, conditions over the last few years, at least since 2016 anyway. So maybe what we could do is, is sort of suspend disbelief for a second and kind of imagine that we have a really good political situation and think of what a kind of maximalist version of a reset relationship might look like within the kind of likely political constraints. So not joining the single market. I don't know about the customs union, but certainly less than rejoining and less than the single market. What could one feel a reset with were political conditions as good as possible on both sides? I mean, can I just interject one thing on political conditions, which is also to say that the politics needs to be right on the EU side, because one of the things we've seen over the last couple of years globally 
is, of course, this slight withdrawal from globalization, this desire on the part of the big powers to protect strategic domestic industries. Where the EU is on economic policies is not massively conducive to improved economic relations with the UK either. So it's just worth throwing that in. It's not The UK isn't the home of all the problems to do with this relationship. It's worth No, no, in. absolutely. And the, the EU could be a lot worse um, by the time the UK is in a state where it wants a good relationship. But if we suspend disbelief and kind of think that things are, you know, about as good as they're likely to be in, in you know, within kind of human possibility on on both sides, and you are starting to think about a reset, um, you know, in the second half of next year. If we kind of think about what one might be aiming for at that sort of stage, what are the main sort of baskets of a better relationship? Okay, I mean, there are lots of areas where things can be improved. None of it is particularly sexy, but I think all of it is quite important. There are some quite technical economic areas when it comes to the rules of origin around electric vehicles, for instance, where a deal has to be done or it will be bad for both sides. Uh, A particular bugbear of mine is the way that the European Union has designed its European Defence Fund, which is meant to help European defence firms and encourage European procurement, which makes it very, very hard for non-member states to participate. And I I would hope that down the line, we might find a way of getting the UK more involved in that. Uh, There is, and the Labour Party have talked about this, the potential for the two sides to sign some sort of security agreement. Uh, I think that looks good. I think it feels good. I think it brings the two sides closer together. It allows them to meet more often. I'm a little bit cynical about what else practically would achieve, but that's one area where I think we will see progress. The really interesting question, I think, is about the macroeconomics, because the problem here, even though within the UK there's a lot of talk of sort of tiptoeing back closer to the European Union, the problem here is that without the single market and the customs union, the gains to be had are relatively meagre. So what that will depend on is whether our next prime minister is willing to spend quite a lot of time negotiating with the European Union for side agreements, maybe on electric cars, they've got to renegotiate fisheries, maybe on uh, mobility of people, knowing that the overall macroeconomic benefits of whatever they they get aren't going to be that massive. And apart from electric vehicles, I mean, do you think that there's scope? I mean, you know, one of the big um, losses to the UK of uh, the last few years has been in financial services where they've kind of lost equivalents. Do you think that what areas are least likely to are both going to be most important macroeconomically but also going to be possible to to, to conceive mm-hmm. without having total freedom of movement i'm not i'm not a hundred percent convinced that even a labor government would search for uh broader equivalents partly because the european union to date has been very reluctant to give us equivalents partly because there's quite a lot of opposition you you know listen to what the bank of england says about the uk being a rule taker when it comes to financial services there's quite a bit of pushback there and unease at the notion that the uk would follow eu rules i think i rather think when it comes to financial services i mean there are two important things firstly i think the impact to date on uk financial services on Bre- of brexit has not been anywhere near as bad as some of the worst case scenarios predicted, which has been, you know, quite reassuring uh, for people here. Secondly, I think, you know, financial services is one area where it is conceivable that the current government will act in terms of changing our regulatory framework before the next election, making it a lot harder for any Labour government to come back and revisit that. So I don't think financial services is necessarily 
the key area. I think actually services, exports, and the movement of people is probably the most important thing. So there are lots of things here, for instance, when it comes to mutual recognition of qualifications, when it comes to the ability of people to travel visa-free for short amounts of time to deliver services at the moment. I mean, just anecdotally, in my own area, which is academia, I know of loads of people who've ended up either cancelling trips to go and teach courses uh, within the European Union because of the paperwork or very reluctantly agreeing to go and do it and not get paid because the paperwork was so daunting. So I think in that area, service provision, we could be looking at a negotiation. The one caveat I'd place to all that, of course, which goes back to what I said earlier about the European Union, is the European Union isn't in a mood to do us any favours economically. So there has to be something in it for them as well. And that's where things might get tricky. So on that, you've, you've kind of talked about, in, in terms of potential obstacles, you've talked about the politics on both sides, um, which is obviously going to play into this. You've talked about the difficulties from a UK perspective of being a rule taker. Do you see more uh, scope now in, in terms of the UK fitting into broader processes, which are kind of part of the... You know, uh, one, one thing I'm thinking of here is that there was obviously this conversation about the UK being interested in um, the the transatlantic uh, TTC. And the the difficulty, obviously, from a UK point of view is that they don't want to kind of jump into a a ready-made EU process. This needs to kind of have an EU stamp on it. So can you kind of talk us through whether you see more space for creativity around around formats now or whether that still feels difficult? I think, though, I mean, it's incredibly hard to know because they don't provide much in the way of detail. They might well be under a Labour government. I think Rishi Sunak has set his heart on the UK forging its own course when it comes to technology and AI. I see very little prospect, particularly after his his visit to Washington, of him turning around and saying, oh, let's do this in tandem with the Canadians and the EU with the United States. I think he wants the UK to have a specific special relationship, as it were, with the United States and a special place when it comes to AI. It's not wholly ridiculous. I mean, the AI, the UK is a very strong player when it comes to AI at the moment. So in that sense, then, what I would like to see, I mean, one of the one of the things that always slightly bugged me about the Brexit process was no one really stepped back. And if you think about the sort of the sort of things that you the European Council on Foreign Relations spend your time thinking about, if the Europeans and the UK were to step back and say, we live in a world where the United States is increasingly unreliable as a partner because of the nature of domestic politics, where China is a looming challenge economically, politically, and we hope not, but potentially militarily. Our interests are common interests. We want the same outcomes on all of these major global issues. We need to be able to see beyond the sort of very, very detailed legal kind of things that have the structured negotiations so far and start from the following premise. We are going to be partners in confronting all the major international threats of our time. We need to find a way to get from where we are now to a place where it is easier for us to work together to address them. And one of the things I'd hope for is the sort of formal negotiations and as if you like, the white heat of the Brexit negotiations fade into the rearview mirror. Both sides are more able to think strategically, to think internationally, and to put Brexit into context and into perspective. Then I think there are lots of ways when we could do joint initiatives that will be to both to, be to our mutual benefit. Can you maybe be a bit more specific about that? I mean, you know, people talked about us having some sort of security pact or treaty um, as a way of, of doing that. I mean, it's pretty obvious that 
the third party, the provisions for working with third parties have traditionally been designed to make third parties as reluctant as possible to to want to engage in them. It's obvious that, you know, working together informally before a kind of G7 meeting is quite an easy thing to do and you don't need any kind of treaties for that. And on sanctions, you know, you can work within the kind of G7 framework. Um, the E3 was one kind of example of a policy area that kind of carried on even through Brexit on Iran. But, you know, there was a reluctance mm-hmm. to kind of apply it to other issues. But what other kind of ideas do you think you might have? And, and are any of them things which could be enhanced by having uh, a treaty? Well, I mean, this is where the mood music matters, because I think when it comes to bilateral or minilateral collaboration with member states, if we're not in a state of tension with the European Union, it's easier for them to work with us in that kind of way. If there's a standoff with Brussels going on, Paris, Berlin, all those capitals will say, hang on a sec, sort out your issues with the European Union, then get back to us. Now, I think what that means is I personally think the E3 is potentially a very useful forum for, for instance, coordinating the fact that there are three Indo-Pacific tilts going on in those three countries and talking about them together, collaborating together, maybe talking about uh, patrol schedules of naval forces and things like that is an obvious area where actually we could do more together than we can as individual countries. When it comes to the security relationship with the European Union, you're absolutely right, Mark. And I had a degree of sympathy with Boris Johnson's government over this, which is why the hell would we sign up to the same third party foreign and security policy deal as you've given Norway? We're not Norway. We're obviously not Norway. Uh, And one of the great stumbling blocks here has always been this favourite refrain of Michel Barnier, you will be a third country like any other. Well, it's obvious to me that all third countries are different and should be treated differently. So I think when it comes to a relationship with the European Union, either the European Union is a little bit more flexible and acknowledges the fact that the security relationship with the UK is unique. But what would I, you know, because one of the interesting things, obviously NATO is becoming more important, it's looking much less brain dead than it was um, a couple of years ago. But at the same time, it doesn't really have any uh, competences in a lot of the areas of modern security, which are often about export controls and import controls and sanctions and, you know, a whole panoply of of things have become securitized, many of which the EU has quite a lot of, of competences in. So even... I mean, lots of the areas are covered by the whole of the EU, but a lot of them are even in kind of first pillar areas where the European Commission has quite a lot of delegated powers. So from an EU perspective, where would they benefit from from having the UK on that? Because it's more obvious where they benefit from it on the kind of hard side, hard security side. But in a way, they don't need it as much because there is NATO and you can also have these sort of Minilateral things, there's not very much of that being pulled at a European level. Well, I think, you know, as you drift away from the hard security stuff, you're talking about things like data and security databases, about yeah. police cooperation. These are clearly areas where both sides have got something to be gained from working together. Just in the context of the debates over migration, for instance, closer collaboration to deal with trafficking gangs would, would be to everyone's benefit. And there, I think, maybe. Down the line, we might be able to negotiate closer collaboration in those areas. Again, it's always going to depend on the trade-offs that are asked for from the European Union. I mean, one of the things that if you're if you're in favour of this, co- this collaboration is quite positive is there's been far less talk recently on the British side 
of massive divergence when it comes to our practices for handling data. Because, of course, the adequacy decision that the European Union gave us is key for the cooperation we have already and will be key to building things further onto that so that we can collaborate on some of the sort of security aspects of data as well. Just while you've been um, talking about migration to to come back onto that, because I thought we were doing well to have been going for 15 minutes without um, (laughs) getting into that. Um, So one of um, the processes which we've been following with some interest at ECFR is around the development of this European political community. So a, a larger group of states kind of um, which uh, doesn't just involve the EU, but um, but also um, the UK, Norway, Turkey, uh, and then sort of wider Europe and so on. And uh, one of the, the things which the UK, which has engaged quite constructively in the development of this, even though it was originally a French idea, has been pushing is, is for the migration conversation um, to, to develop a bit further there. Do you see this as being sort of one of the ways uh, to get around uh, formal UK EU cooperation in in sort of certain areas that um, the in a way you, you kind of broaden the space out and um, that you take the toxicity around that particular uh, format for uh, further cooperation out and and you know do, do you see ways in which that could sort of practically move this um, this file forward? I have to say only to a very limited extent, uh, and that extent is probably the kind of deals with countries like Albania, bilateral countries with states, bilateral deals with states on the European periphery where we want to ease the return of people who are coming here. I mean, that's quite limited. Uh, but more broadly, I mean, one of the fascinating things about the last EPC meeting was how the press here made it seem as if Rishi Sunak had pressed, pushed migration to the top of the agenda of the formal meeting. And, of course, it wasn't even on the agenda of the formal meeting. Uh, so I don't, think, I don't think other members – I don't think the member states or the European Union are going to let us sort of try and stick our pet projects onto the agenda to dominate the meetings. It's very hard to get something on the agenda of the EPC because everyone has to say say yes. So it's a bit of a nightmare. So I think insofar, I mean, I think the EPC is a useful forum which keeps us plugged in, which allows our prime minister to meet heads of state and government from other European states. And that's something that is in short supply now we're out of the European Union. So that's great and allows us to talk to some of those peripheral states. But making real progress on issues like migration, I think we have to sit down either with individual member states or with the European Union itself. And given the problems at the European Union, one of the interesting, one of the other interesting things in the lead up to the EPC was, you know, lots of journalists rang up and said, do you think that the European Union is going to help us out when it comes to migration or asylum seekers? And my response was, well, no, because... They're taking far more. Uh, they see as if anything is a bit of a free rider on this. They've got their own problems and they're not in the mood to be doing us favours. I mean, it's only in our minds when we've got a problem that's greater than everyone else. In reality, the numbers, whether it's France or Germany, are bigger there. So on uh, migration, um, one of the big political problems on the UK side is is free movement. But at the same time, there are lots of problems for British citizens, uh, you know, queuing for hours and hours uh, uh, for their to get on planes and trains when they go to the EU, but also from the EU side, educational mobility is something which is a, a kind of huge uh, topic. And there's been a, you know, huge fall in the number of EU students coming to the UK do you want to, what do you think, what scope do you think there is in terms of actually making people's lives better so that there'd be kind of tangible benefits for ordinary people from a reset? 
Okay. Well, I think let's leave uh, university students to one side because it, it's, it's messy. I don't see much prospect of change there. I don't see the UK in the near term rejoining the exchange schemes, particularly because there is a very heated debate about universities and who they admit that is starting at the moment in the context of the latest uh, immigration figures. I think one area where actually the UK government can help things along, should it want to, is the area of school trips. We've seen an absolute falling off in the number of school trips from the European Union coming over here, which is due to a variety of factors, one of which is that we no longer accept uh, EU identity cards as identification for people coming here. And many kids in continental Europe have identity cards and not passports. So there, I think, is something we can act on quite quickly. That industry has really been suffering of late. So there's there's an immediate one. easing the passage for school kids. When it comes to the EU border, I'm not sure how much influence we really have. There is still, when you talk to EU officials, that slightly, and I'm not for a moment indicating they're all French, I was going to say a slightly Gallic shrug, and the kind of, well, that's what happens when you leave, and you're not in the single market, you're not part of free movement, then you're going to have these controls. And of course, the big question we're all confronting now is when the EU are going to bring in this new fingerprint scheme, which initially at least, is going to cause chaos at the border. Now, we've been saved for the moment by the Paris Olympics, which I think means that the EU is going to delay the implementation of that scheme. But on that, I'm really not sure that there's much the UK can do because I'm really not sure that the EU is going to be in a position to or in a mind to compromise on this new scheme. But the there are other countries like the US where people have kind of free pre-clearance and various other things to make life less horrible. Do you think there's any scope for for something like that to happen? I think so. I mean, that's the immigration is one area where the political constraints look like they might be tightest because we're just kicking off another big debate about immigration. I should say, actually, when it comes to immigration, the, all the problems you, you raised are legitimate and are problems. The other problem we have when it comes to immigration is government policy because the reason we're getting over 600,000 people coming here is because that's what government policy has done. Uh, so there's there's a massive fight going on inside government now about what that policy should be. And a lot hinges on where we are with that debate when we get a new government in. Uh, that is to say, even a Labour government that is committed to closer relationship with the European Union, particularly a Labour government with a small majority, is going to tread quite carefully, I think, when it comes to immigration, because it's seen as such a difficult issue and one where the Conservatives can make hay under the right circumstances. But at the same time, you know, once you're in government, if you look at the net figures, they've gone up rather than down post-Brexit. Are there ways that you could imagine something between, you know, free movement and the status quo where maybe some of this net migration that we're seeing, more of the net migration comes from the EU rather than from from the rest of the world? Uh, You know, we used to have roughly half coming out from the EU and half from outside of the EU pre-2016. And now, you know, things have skewed very, you know, the actual overall figures are remarkably similar, but they're, they're a bit higher. But uh, Oh, they're much higher. They're, they're much higher than they were, but there's obviously been a COVID sort of... Um, yeah, uh, I mean, I'd say several things. I'd say firstly that I think actually for a variety of reasons, even if we hadn't ended free movement the numbers of Europeans coming here would have fallen. I mean, one of the reasons the numbers were so high pre-referendum is that the UK was acting as a kind of labour market of last resort for a currency, the euro, that we weren't in. And of course, the 
the problems in the eurozone meant we got lots of southern Europeans coming over here because there there was no work to be had over there. I find it very hard to believe any future government will legislate to give a priority to Europeans, to be honest. It might be that uh, future governments legislate to make it easier for people to come for the sorts of mainly temporary jobs that Europeans are more likely to do than people from further afield. If you think about it, one of the reasons why uh, a lot of the sort of more casual or lower paid jobs aren't getting filled is because it's harder for Europeans to come here. And actually, you're not going to come from the other side of the world to go to Boston in Lincolnshire and pick fruit for three months. That is certainly possible. It depends how any new government interacts with the sector's most affected. There's no possibility, I don't think, of this happening under the current yeah, government. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I think that's clear. So if you kind of assume that you did prioritise Europeans, what would that get you? Is that, would that, could that get you some real macroeconomic benefits? Which Because, I mean, I think that's the, the biggest challenge, isn't it? People are going to be looking at the OBR estimates and joining the single market would make a tangible difference yeah, to what the OBR I think, says. yeah, it would make it absolutely, it would make a macroeconomic difference. Yes, though intuitively, if you think about it, if we've if we have now got a bunch of people who meet the minimum wage threshold coming into the country, in terms of GDP per capita, that should be more beneficial to the economy than having lots of people coming to do far lower paid jobs. So I think in in purely economic terms, and my colleague Jonathan Portes bangs on about this, this situation, this the, the current situation is quite good. It's working. We're getting in the migrants we need to fill these jobs. Uh, the issues are purely political on this. You know, we have a points-based system, as was promised by Vote Leave, that apart from the administrative nightmare that is the Home Office, is working relatively well. Uh, so, so in that sense, I wonder whether it won't be a priority for a new government to come in and say, right, let's sort this so we can have Europeans rather than Indians, say. What, what might happen conceivably is that the, is the UK goes to the EU and says, we want some help sending our architects slash lawyers slash other service providers to European countries. And the EU say, well, in return, that's where the negotiation could happen. I mean, climate is an area where um, the UK's still got sort of residual leadership credentials after <laughs> after hosting COP26 in, in, in Glasgow, um, but also um, in terms of the implementation of the decarbonisation agenda in the UK. Uh, you know, it, I, I think it is one of the areas where um, you often hear around different European capitals that um, those kind of closer links are missed. But I thought that your report in January, your Where Next, the Future of UK-EU relationship, was quite interesting on this because you were identifying this both as um, an area where there is space for cooperation, um, but where there are also difficulties in terms of the impact of European Green Deal measures um, in terms of UK competitiveness and and sort of managing that as um, being a kind of space for conversation. So I wondered if you could talk us through um, that area. I mean, you've summarised that so well, you don't really need me, to be perfectly honest. I mean, <laughs> I mean yeah, to give, give a, to give a, a couple of examples, clearly if we, you know, there are there is space for us to collaborate on things like energy, we're talking about interconnectors and things like that, there's all sorts of scope for that. On the other hand, there are areas where it's quite hard for us to work with the European Union without either aligning so you think about the carbon border adjustment mechanism, that has potentially huge implications for some UK industries. And the UK government faces a choice 
that is, it has successfully ducked for an awfully long time between either aligning or coming up with a better solution and figuring out to, what to do with the tariff wall that will face some of our industries. So there are difficult political choices around some areas uh, of working together. And of course, there is the fact that the European Union, a bit like the United States, seems to be turning towards an economic policy that consists of using public money to try and encourage the development of domestic industries. And of course, that is massively problematic uh, for the United Kingdom, because if the EU and the US are both doing that, it's very, very hard for us to find a, a, a collaborative way of dealing with this. Um, what about um, the energy questions? Are there things that we could benefit from in terms of um, resetting our relationships with, with, with the EU? I mean, interconnectors are the obvious ones. I think in terms of energy, most of the issues that we face are from our own short-sighted decisions not to invest, say, in nuclear. I've got a vivid memory of Nick Clegg when it was 2010, I think it was, saying the problem with investing in nuclear is it won't come on stream till 2019. Well, here we are and we haven't got it and we're kind of regretting. Uh, or, or the decision not to insulate homes or the decision not to invest in gas storage. Actually, I think in dealing with some of the problems of energy that we face. I think most of the decisions are decisions for us to take about us, and they usually involve medium or long-term investments that we're becoming very, very bad at doing politically. So there are still a few areas we haven't talked about yet. Maybe we should just race through some of them, like phytosanitary issues, innovation, horizon. That yeah, SP, on SPS, phytosanitary and phytosanitary, having alignment will clearly be helpful. It's clearly something we could negotiate. Uh, it'll help those that trade in sort of livestock and things like that. It'll make the Northern Ireland border thinner even than it is going to be when the Windsor framework is implemented. There's some interesting discussions in this country. I sometimes worry that figures in the Labour Party kind of think that when they go to Brussels to negotiate stuff, they're going to be welcomed with open arms because they're not the Tories and given things that weren't available to the Conservatives. So we talk about, let's have a New Zealand type deal, uh, veterinary agreement, for instance. Uh, and I heard a Labour figure yesterday say something like, we should have a deal like New Zealand. I mean, New Zealand are miles away, so we should be able to get something like that because we're a neighbour. And that's precisely why we probably won't get a deal like the New Zealand deal. New Zealand is miles away, which means you can give them a nice veterinary agreement because actually only a limited amount of stuff travels that far. We are a next door neighbor. And I think we've always got to remember that the EU, and particularly the EU as it is now, will look out very, very carefully for its own economic interests in this. So we shouldn't take it for granted that they'll simply say, oh, you want to collaborate with us? Fantastic. Let's, let's do it. So what else should we have talked about? I mean, I would have talked a little bit more about defence, to be honest, because I think the defence industrial stuff is really, really interesting and important. And, you know, the the, the sort of the, the slight mercantilism of EU funding schemes pulls in completely the opposite direction to the rhetoric around European collaboration over Ukraine. That That's, that's something I, th I think will haunt us going forward. I think it's something that the UK was keen to raise at the EPC meeting and the EU just laughed. But we had this precedent with Galileo, which um, yeah. was the shows this the kind of worst of both worlds. For, yeah. Um, yeah. You, so how would you break that being the kind of way that we think about these issues? That's up for the EU and its lawyers, isn't it? I mean, we ultimately got where we got because the EU came out with this rather staggering declaration saying that outside the EU, we perceive you as a security threat to be in the whole thing. I mean, I thought that was weird. 
uh, particularly as you say, as we sit around the same table in NATO and share defence plans and things like that. But that's 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 where we got to manufacturing. It was a product of the lawyers, but perhaps also a product of the moment um, that we were in at the time. Well, maybe just a product of the of the consensus in Paris. Yes, well, a lot of things. Are, I mean, it was very interesting when it comes to the European Defence Fund that there was a a very different sort of Swedish vision for the future of that fund when they were negotiating it that would have seen it be far more open to uh, producers from third countries. And it was the French vision that ultimately won out. So how do you think you could go about changing that dynamic? I think it'll take time. And I think, you know, a new government might help with that. I think if we get a Labour government in that is keen to work with the European Union, I think diplomatic relations will improve still further. I think the bottom line with the European Union is however much they like you, they're quite legalistic and stuck with their rules. And I'm struck. I mean, I'm also struck by a number of sort of SNP figures who, if you say, well, what happens with independence and, and the border between Scotland and England? They'll say, yeah, but when we come, push comes to shove, the EU wouldn't do this to us, would they? And the answer is, yes, they would. Absolutely. Without a shadow of a doubt. And I think, you know, the, 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 one of the problems... If there's a PP government in Spain, I think they'll be even more aggressive towards... No, no, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Without a shadow of a doubt. But, what you know... Whoever you are and wherever you are, the EU are a nightmare to negotiate with. And actually, in that sense, any the EU dealing with I mean, you, I don't need to tell you, you people, this you, this is your bread and butter. But you know, dealing with the European Union outside of the perspective of membership as a neighbour is a nightmare because they tend to play hardball. Okay, I think we're coming to the end of our time, Anand. Maybe just as a last question, what is the kind of mechanism for, for delivering a reset? So there's going to be this, um, the, the terms of the, the trade and cooperation agreement are coming up in 2025 and they're going to have to be renegotiated. But what, what form do you think a kind of reset might take apart from the sort of, you know, gradual resumption of, of, of uh, relations as normal, which we've seen with the Franco-British summit and the kind of post-Windsor um, normalizing of things. But if you did have a change of government and you wanted to kind of map out an element, what would the uh, the best way of kind of grouping these things be and, what, and how would you sequence them? I think you start with the easy, easiest, which is you start with the security, because actually that isn't first pillar in any way, shape or form. And I think that is where you start. You build good, good relations, you buttress that with strong bilateral links with individual member states, and you take it from there. You see what's happening. I mean, then presumably, if we're talking about a Labour government, you're halfway through a first term, you're talk, thinking about the next election, and then you can start thinking medium term about whether you, what, whether you are happy with the economic status quo or not. I should just add one thing. The trade and cooperation review is absolutely not a renegotiation. This is a revisiting of the treaty to make sure what that, that we are doing what it says and that it's working properly. Here again, I think some people in the UK are getting overexcited about the possibility to rewrite that deal with the review. That's absolutely not how the EU is thinking or how the EU is approaching it. We're running out of time now, but there's one thing left to do, which is our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf, Anand? I mean, given the audience, the ECFR audience of people who maybe are still looking at the UK and scratching their heads a little bit and thinking, my God, what is going on? There is a book called Brexit Land by Rob Ford and Maria Sobolewska that looks at what has happened to UK politics and how Brexit happened as a result of that, that I think is the single best book on the changes that have happened in UK politics over the last few decades. Fantastic. And obviously you should check out Anand's book as well, which we'll also put a link to up on our website at ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, 
please head to whatever platform you've used to download it from and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, do give us a positive review and a five-star rating as that will bring other people to the podcast. We'll put links up to the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Anand, from Susie and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar and the editor of this episode is Maria Farrow-Sarats. Mm-hmm.